The study of the Civil War has often focused on the leaders and politicians of the period. However, the course of history and resulting heritage and freedom that endures today were largely shaped by the men who marched into battle with weapons in their hands, the soldiers. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Phil Russman. Our guest tonight, Dr. James Robertson, professor at Virginia Polytech Institute and State University, will share his views on the soldiers of the Civil War. Author of 12 books, including the award-winning Stonewall Jackson, The Man, The Soldier, The Legend, Dr. Robertson was also the chief historical consultant for the movie Gods and Generals. Speaking with Dr. Robertson will be our guest host, Professor Gaston Espinoza of Claremont McKenna College. Coming up in a moment, Dr. James Robertson. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm Gaston Espinoza. With me today is Dr. James Robertson. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Robertson. Thank you for having me, Gaston, and greetings from Virginia. Well, thank you. What kind of stereotypes persist about soldiers in the Civil War, and why are they accurate? Well, I think the general stereotype of the Civil War soldiers that they were clean, nicely uniformed, well-educated, mature, and they were professionals, and none of that was true. In fact, they were simply amateurs, civilians on loan to the military. And in addition, thanks in great part to Hollywood, which treats history with uh, incredible simplicity, it was not all black against white. It was not all right against wrong. Uh, the armies had that good men. The armies, other armies had that good men, too. So uh, it, it's difficult to make a stereotype of these men, except that they, they lived in a very stormy, traumatic time. What percentage of soldiers back then were, were regularly enlisted soldiers? Oh, I would, there were probably uh, 95% were enlisted men. 
95% were enlisted. Yes. The regular army consisted of barely 15,000 men at the outset of the war, and, and the regular army did not increase much, whereas by the time of Appomattox, about 3 million men were in arms. In what ways were Gone with the Wind and the, and the movie series Roots both accurate and inaccurate in the way they depicted both southern soldiers and northern soldiers? It, it goes back to what I said a moment ago. In, in any kind of movie, you've got to have the good guys and you've got to have the bad guys, and there's no big gray in between. Uh, for example, in the movie Shenandoah, which uh, was the runner-up to The Sound of Music for the Academy Award in 1964, uh, the Yankees are the bad guys. Uh, whereas you get into a wonderful movie like Glory, the Confederates are the bad guys. And then in 2002, when the movie Gods and Generals came out, a lot of people were confused because there were good guys and bad guys on both sides. And, and history tells us that that's, in fact, closer to the truth, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Um, let's talk a little bit about these soldiers. You know, who were they? What were they really like? I mean, what was the average age of a typical soldier from the South and the North, and, and um, what was their educational background like? Oh, I think we can really talk about Johnny Rebs and Billy Yanks together and take off their uniforms, and you would not have been able to tell them apart as, as soldiers on contrasting sides in this war. The average age was somewhere between 20 and 22. The average height was 5 feet 7 inches, and the average weight was 135 pounds, and I just described General Ulysses S. Grant. They were very small people back then, in large part due to the fact that fast foods had not uh, taken such hold of the American cuisine <laughs> in the mid-19th century as they have here in our own day. They had had very little education. I would venture to say probably a second or third grade education, by and large. And for the most part, they're farm boys, especially so on the southern side, but in the northern armies as well. And I think the preponderance of uh, pre-war occupations would have been farmer. Well, what were their attitudes towards war and towards the conflict as a whole? I think they were so naive at that time. I'm going to give you an incredible statistic. In 1860, there were 27.5 million white people in America. Over half of those 27.5 million were under the age of 21. Mm. We were a very, very young nation, innocent, naive, as I said. And when war comes along, for these youngsters, they had never envisioned the war. The last war was the war of 18, uh, the Mexican War of 1846, and uh, they were only infants at that time. So war is to them exciting. Uh, it's a chance to go out and prove yourself uh, worthy to be a great adult and hopefully a great hero. So they go into this war with great naivete, with with thinking that it's it's going to be quick and and gallant and brave, and if anybody gets hurt, it'll be someone else. Well, why did soldiers enlist in addition to this naivety? Were there, was there a difference in why Northerners enlisted as opposed to Southern soldiers? I think here you have to kind of give the weight of evidence to the Southern soldiers uh, because to hold the Union together, the North has to be the invader. They have to forcibly come down into the South and physically bring the South back into the Union. So whereas the Northerners can fight for the great dream of Union, uh, the southern soldiers are fighting for the practical uh, reality of defending their hearths and homes and what is dear to them. That is the overwhelming reason that these men go into war, but there were other reasons, too, much more pragmatic, I suppose one could say. That was the excitement that it offered, the thrill of being a soldier, an opportunity to fight, maybe 
gain a red badge of courage, as a bottle wound was then called. Many enlisted simply because their friends were doing so, or it was an opportunity to see new places and make new friends. But I think the greatest inducement of all to these men of North and South was pure patriotism. Uh, I found in my own research that the greatest inducement for these men, whether they lived in Massachusetts or Mississippi, was the words on the poster, or maybe nothing more than a flag waving in a clear sky. That was it. That was enough to send them into the Army. Remarkable. Remarkable. In, in a sense it is, Gaston. In a sense it's not, because these men are motivated by the same emotions that have inspired American soldiers of all ages, to defend mm. heart and home, to protect that way of life, to preserve that government as each side at that time interpreted what government should be. Mm. And when we talk about the soldiers, were most of these soldiers second, third, fourth generation, or were many of these people also immigrants? Uh, most of them are, are, are long-time residents of America, relatively speaking. But immigrants will form about 20% of all Union armies. About one out of every five Billy Yanks will be an immigrant. About one out of every ten Confederates, Johnny Rebs, will be an immigrant. The 1830s and the 1840s was probably the peak time for immigration as foreigners from Europe were flooding into the country. And they would go out and inhabit by and large, the great Midwestern and upper Midwestern states. And uh, when the war comes, suddenly the union with, for which they have traveled halfway around the world to enjoy is in peril, and these immigrants fight with a tenacity that frankly shocked, I think, most Southerners. Really? Let's talk about that. I've never heard that story before. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, from oppression in Europe, they, they sail across the stormy, lengthy Atlantic Ocean. They get here, and they go out into areas such as Iowa, and I lived in Iowa teaching there once, and it's just beautiful country that you can grow toenail clippings in the dirt out there, <laughs> and suddenly they are having these great boosting uh, prosperous crops. Uh, agriculture is booming for them. Uh, they are prosperous, which they've never been before, and it's all because this, this United States had offered them a refuge, and in 1861 that United States falls apart. And the, these men who have risked their lives and staked everything on the Union now rush to defend it. And contrary to what a lot of Northeasterners would like to accept, actually the first volunteers come out of the Midwest, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and That's they are immigrants who are flocking to defend the Union. Now, were most of these immigrants from Ireland and Germany since we, we have the, large the waves? Will, yes, the Germans will supply roughly about 200,000 men. The Irish will supply probably a little more than that. There were 20 all-Irish regiments uh, really? in the Union Army alone. The well, that's a fascinating story in itself. Yes, the 69th New York is probably the most famous of that. And, uh, but the German, Irish, uh, some Italians, uh, I, I, in doing research in the Midwest, I came across a Wisconsin regiment, which was supposed to have a 1,000 men. It had a 1,001. It was totally German. And so the extra man was an interpreter. He took the <laughs> outgoing, order, outgoing reports and translated them into English and took the incoming orders and translated them into German. That's but, unbelievable. Uh, the most, and I'm going to tell you the most unique regiment of all was a Minnesota unit that was all Norwegian. All Norwegian. All Norwegian. That was unique in itself. But in addition to that, 61 members of the regiment were named Ole Olsen. <laughs> which gave the colonel a fit until he finally found the solution to what to do. He simply and officially numbered each one, Ole Olson 1, Ole Olson 17, Ole Olson 44, and got, got around that. But immigrants will always be a, a dominant factor in Union armies. 
Now, did Native Americans also fight in the war, and if so, on which side? Early in the 19th century, most of these Indian tribes had been driven from their ancestral lands out to the Indian Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma. Uh, the Civil War comes, and they don't have a whole lot of enthusiasm for North or South, mm. but the both sides will, will uh, court them. And uh, in, during the Civil War, about half the Indians weren't loyal, the other half were Confederate. They only engaged, insofar as we are sure, in one major battle, and that was Pea Ridge, Arkansas, in March of 1862. The Cherokee tribe became very prominent in the Confederate uh, cause, and indeed the Cherokee leader, Stan Wadey, became a Confederate brigadier general. Really? And he had the uh, distinction of surrendering the last band of Confederate troops, and he did that, surrendered his Indians a month after the last Southern Army had laid down its arms. Well, that would make a... A uh, fabulous movie. Yes, it would. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure the truth would, would prevail in it, though. What's that? I'm not sure the truth would prevail in it. Uh, I see. Hollywood has a, has a trouble with facts. Yes. Uh, it likes to deal in fantasy. Its primary function is to entertain, not to educate. Yes. Well, um, where was the average U.S. soldier born if he was from the north? You mentioned Iowa, right? Yes, well, the, uh, these, uh, I think population plays a part here. Uh, the bulk of your Union soldiers are going to come naturally from the big states, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio. The bulk of your southern soldiers are going to come from the more populous states of Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Hmm. What was the biggest killer in the Civil War? Was it the bayonets and the cannons? No, and nor was it the bullets. The biggest killer in the Civil War is diarrhea. Diarrhea? Yes, intestinal disorders will kill probably more men than die in action. Uh, the sickness in the Civil War was just rampant. Indeed, for every one man killed in action in that war, two men died behind the lines from disease and sickness and infection. Why was sickness so rampant? Oh, a whole lot of uh, factors uh, play a role here. One was the ease with which a man could enter the Army. The prevailing thought was that if someone was holding down a civilian job adequately, he was quite fit to be a soldier. Medical exams at that time were a sham. And once the recruits got into camp, then camp life did what physical, physical exams had failed to do, namely to weed out the sick and the infirm. The Civil War encampments were just absolutely filthy, indescribably filthy. Uh, if you had an army of 100,000 men, well, you're going to have 35,000 horses there. Mm. And if each horse is dropping 12 pounds of manure a day and there are 35,000 of them, uh, then you can begin to see the filth that's going to accumulate around an encampment, and we haven't even talked about the soldiers yet. We're just talking about the horses. The rations were poor. The medical care was, was very, very inadequate, antiquated. And that was a, a basic backwardness in, in the knowledge of medicine at that time. American medicine in the mid-19th century was more akin to the Middle Ages than it was to modern times. Well, then how did Johnny Rebs and Billy Yanks feel about going into battle in light of the sicknesses and diseases that were running through the camps? Yes, yeah, so that, they play a role, but once the time for battle comes, they move into battle, and I think they have the same anxieties of soldiers of every age. There's a fear of various kinds of things. Uh, they go, they march toward the battlefield, fearing the unknown. Uh, they get close to the battlefield, then they're beginning to fear being hurt or killed. Uh, many of them I have found in studying their letters have a strong fear of, in the excitement and the uh, terror of battle, losing control of their bodily functions. Oh, really? 
and, and in the sight of fellow soldiers, this would have been absolutely humiliating. Mm. And so after a battle, I've read many diary entries and letters by soldiers saying such things as, well, thank God I, I didn't mess my trousers or something to that effect. But I think perhaps the greatest fear among soldiers was cowardice. They, they were afraid they might show the yellow, the, the white flower or something and, and disgrace themselves. And even when you read their memoirs, uh, they are still very, very cautious about saying that any of them ever felt uh, any qualms of cowardice. I, I love a quote of a Michigan soldier. Uh, his regiment went reeling in defeat in one engagement, and years afterwards when he was writing about it, he said something to the effect, of course, it would not be gallant to say that anybody run, but if there was any tall walking during, done during that war, we did it crossing that field. And I think this this kind of conveys this this obsession with not letting cowardice overwhelm you. And yet I must hasten to add that for every instance of cowardice, there were 100 instances of valor. The Medal of Honor awarded by Congress is a direct outgrowth of, of the gallantry in that war. And the instances are just uh, countless of where a, a captain or a lieutenant would fall in action, a private would jump forward and take command. Nobody had to be asked, no volunteers had to be called for. The most dangerous position in an army was the color barrel, because uh, knock down the color barrel, you knock down the flag of inspiration that motivates the men. And yet a color barrel would fall, a dozen men would jump forward to raise the colors anew. Uh, there's a wonderful story that, uh, told at Port Donaldson, Tennessee, in February 1862, when six color barrels in succession in the second Iowa regiment went down, a shot and, and killed as the regiment was moving into action. And the seventh man who picked up the colors, fortunately survived the battle, though he was desperately wounded, and his name was Corporal Twombly, and he was one of the first recipients of the Congressional Medal of Honor. Hmm. And this gallantry, I assume, was was equally distributed on both sides of oh, the war. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Remarkable. What impact did faith and religion play on a battlefield? I mean, this was a, a period of tremendous suffering, agony, honor, shame, all mixed up into one incredible field of, of, of gallantry and suffering at the same time. What role did religion play, if at all? You're absolutely correct. And had there not been strong religious feelings, I don't think many of those men could have endured what they had to take. I think morale is the greatest uh, uh, single motivator of, um, I mean, religion is the greatest single motivator of morale in, in the armies of North and South. These are very religious people back then. Uh, the movie Gods and Generals was uh, criticized on occasion for having too much religiosity, which shows an ignorance on the part of uh, movie reviewers because this was a very religious time. Uh, the established churches were, were dominant, even though most, most of them had split in two by the time of the war, but still a religious dominant denomination uh, was a soldier's refuge, if you will. And he, he could read his Bible, he could worship God, he could say his prayers, knowing full well that in all likelihood back home his wife and his children or his mother or his sisters were doing precisely the same thing at the same time. It was a kind of silent link, if you will, between the battlefield and the home front. And so most of these soldiers carried little testaments in their pockets, and most of them died with God on their mind, if not on their lips. Powerful. 
What impact did the war have on religious institutions in the North and the South? You alluded to it just a minute ago. Yes, indeed. The first two fatalities of the Civil War were the two major denominations, Protestant denominations in this country. In 1843, the Baptist Church split in two. In 1844, the Methodist Church similarly split in half all over the issue of slavery. And uh, so the Methodists and the Baptists were the first fatalities. And once the war begins, every major denomination splits. Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, all split in two. They have a northern wing, they have a southern wing. In the case of the Baptists, as you know, they never have come back together. There's a Southern Baptist Convention, and then there's the northern wing of the church. The Methodists uh, came back together only in recent times, in the last 25, 35 years. That's a remarkable story. Well, after our break, we'll pick it up and talk about the Southern generals and the role that they played in, in the war, and we'll look at how their wives and women in general responded to the war. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is Civil War Talk Radio, and I'm Gaston Espinoza, and with me today is Dr. James Robertson. We'll talk again after the break. Thank you. 